0: You have your Bible we'll go to 2nd Samuel. We we'll go back through and uh, pick back up and um, looking at one book for for a week. So 2nd uh, Samuel is where we are. 1st Samuel we had the opportunity to to hear the life of Samuel and Watch the life of Saul, of being willing to hear words, obey is better than sacrifice. And Saul and his sons, they're willing to say, you know, we're not going to do it that way, God. And so this morning you come to a book called Second Samuel, a book where we get a chance to look at a young man. His name is David. As you look at David's life, I just want to uh, uh, say a couple words. A man who understands forgiveness. A man who probably would like to have maybe a do-over. A man that could talk with you about the consequences of sin. A man who could talk with you about the joy of forgiveness. About a man that God used. And so as you come to Second Samuel, I just want to remind you that God did choose David. God chose the youngest and the forgotten son of Jesse. God chose the one that nobody was looking for. God chose the shepherd boy. God chose the one that dad didn't even say, oh, by the way, I still have one more son. God chose this man, David. God established David as king. God had a plan for that the line for the line of the Messiah would come through the household of David. God provided a, a leader for Israel. David reigned for forty years. This morning I want to just um, break this book of Second Samuel up in three different ways, looking through, um, walk through the Bible, and they broke it up and three different maybe chapters, or however you want to look at parts, David's triumphs, David's transgressions, and David's troubles. What I find very interesting is, is most of us, as I was just going back through and thinking through the book of 2 Samuel, I'm pretty familiar with part two. But I was just reminded there was a lot of other things that were around in 2 Samuel that I hadn't thought about in a while. And so I think what's easier for us to do is, oh yeah, we we'll this, you know, David. Oh yeah, we know 2 Samuel chapter 11, that's where he made his choices. But there's a lot of neat and fascinating things that are around this book called 2 Samuel. And I just thought it was amazing to me as I've just been reminded of the sovereignty of God as I thought about the life of David. I've been reminded about the word called grace. God had a plan. God didn't waver from his plan. He's reminded that God uses broken people. Is there any one of us in this room that's not broken? No. God loves sinners. Even after we've made our unwise choices so as you have the book of 2 Samuel in front of you, don't just go to run one chapter and say, oh, well, yeah, that's all about the book of 2 Samuel. Join me this morning as you walk through 2 Samuel. As you start in part one, we're going to talk about um, some triumphs of David. So if you have your Bible, go to 2 Samuel um, chapter one. And before we just run off into this this information of, of 2 Samuel, I want you to stop and just I want to show you something I thought was really interesting as I thought about the life of David. Now, David had a lot of opportunities to be bitter and angry, especially towards Saul. So when it came time for Saul to die, if there should have been anybody that would really be excited about someone dying, David could have been that guy. David had legit reasons to say, you know, God, when you wipe this guy off the face of the earth, I'm really going to have just a big old party because he's tried to kill me a couple of different times. But there was something I find really interesting as even before I got into the book of all of 2nd Samuel was the character of David in the beginning. That he stopped and mourned the loss of Saul and Jonathan. And I think as I was just thinking through 2nd Samuel I kind of just you kind of glance over that part, but you need to stop and just comprehend what that means. The guy that tried to kill him a couple different times, the opportunity where if most of the time what happens in, in, in our lives, we don't normally get when you know, a situation happens and we don't like that individual, normally bitterness sits in. And so instead of getting better and growing in, in, in your life as an individual and a person, you get bitter. And it's everybody else's fault when you're bitter. And David would have the opportunity to play the bitter card. Hold on, time out, God. Here's all the reasons why I can be mad at this guy. But David didn't do that. David said, you know, God, you appointed him as king. And though he did all this stuff to me, God, I'm going to stop and mourn the death of your king. So before you even get started in watching God use David, I was just captivated. You see in verse... Uh, chapter 1 and verse 11 When David and all the men um, with him took hold of their clothes and tore them, they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan. So it was a visible thing. You know, it wasn't something just say, oh, well, you know, I'll just go off and, and nobody will know about it. No, I want everybody to know that I'm going to stop and mourn the loss of these two people. Even though I have rights, even though I can be mad, even though I can be bitter, even though I've got all the reasons, the earthly reasons, excuses that we've all used over the years to hold on to something for a little bit longer. David laid all that stuff down and said, no, God, I'm going to mourn the loss of these two people. David's triumphs in the political area. I want you to see in, um, in chapter 2 of 2 Samuel 8 through 11. Now, I don't realize, and I, we've, and I put the word up there politically, can you just imagine, you've got your dad, which would have been Saul, that is dead. We know Jonathan is dead, but not all of Saul's sons are, are gone. And so there's going to be a power play. Who's going to be the next king? You know, I, I sit underneath my, I should be the next ruler of the kingdom. And so you're going to have this big old struggle that's going to take place. And we don't really think about it a lot, and, and I'm not going to go to it in a whole lot of detail. But you've got one of Saul's sons saying, hold on a second, I want to be king. I want to be the guy that's in charge. What I think is really interesting about the life of David, it's never about him being in charge. It's never about him saying, hold on a second, you know, I was the one that was anointed, so I should just go ahead and make this campaign speech. Here I am, I'm the anointed one. They came and found me, I wasn't looking forward, I was just a shepherd, doing what my dad wanted me to do. Yeah, by the way, I did kill Goliath, nobody else ever did that. Oh, by the way, I did kill a lion and a bear, so just... Just appoint me. I want to be the guy in charge. I want to be the king of Israel. I don't sense that in David's life. I don't sense David walking around putting up signs saying, the next person for king is me. I've got all the credentials. Okay, I don't sense that. Could have he done that? Yeah. He could have walked around and tooted his own horn, but he didn't. So politically, there's going to be some changes take place. Saul has a son. Chapter 2, eight. Um, through 11. Meanwhile, Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had taken... Now, this would be an interesting uh, name for us to try to work our way through, and how many different pronunciations of Saul's son's name would we get? And so, for the sake of me butchering a name, I'm just going to call him Saul's son, who wants to be the next king, and I'll let you figure out how you really want to pronounce that, Okay. Saul's son was 40 years old, dropped down in verse 10, and became king over Israel, and he reigned two years. So he's going to take up one reign for two years. I want you to see what's going to happen to this son. 2 Samuel chapter 4, and if you read 1 through 8 in 2 Samuel chapter 4, um, I'm not going to read all those verses, but I want you to run over to verse 6. They went into the inner uh, part of the house to get some wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach, and his brother, and they slipped away, so his own men are going to kill his Saul's son, his own men are going to take him out. And I don't know, I'm a I'm a blood and gut type person, I love those blood and gut movies, I love that, I mean, Old Testament is full of it, I'm sorry ladies, you can watch your chick flick, but man, it gets gory in the Old, old Testament, I mean, this is flat out war, just, just stab the guy in the stomach, let him die, you know, don't cut his head off, just stab him in the stomach, let him hang out there. And so, the, so one of uh, David's, you know, um, enemies, his own men are going to kill him. And God is going to do something that's really interesting. Go to, to 2 Samuel chapter 5, and um, you can read, this section would go from 1 to 25, but I'm, obviously I'm not going to read all of that. But what's really interesting is, is God is with David. And so God's going to use David, and I I know it's exciting to remember the story of Goliath and the lion and the bear, but God's going to do some really cool things with David. God's going to allow David to walk into Jerusalem and take over the city. He's going to fortify the city. Hadn't been done for years. And so if you look at um, verse uh, 10, and he became more and more Powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. And so in the middle of all the turmoil, yeah, he's lost his son Jonathan. Saul is gone, but now God's going to raise up this young man, and his name is David. And God's going to be with David. And it's exciting. When God is with somebody, normal things just don't happen. The abnormal does. Walk into Jerusalem, fortify the city, Call it home again. This is where we belong. God was going to use King David. And so as David comes back and establishes um, some, some political peace there, I also want you to see something about the spiritual side of David. If you read through um, 2 Samuel, you'll see that David, God's going to use David to do something that's really interesting spiritually. And I, and I found that in, in chapter 6 and verse 3. Now, most of us, we know about the Ark of the Covenant. We've heard about it um, all the way back in, in, in um, Leviticus. You've got Exodus. You've got this whole thing, Ark of the Covenant. And we've got a, kind of a picture of it. I'm not going to say that's exactly what it is, because I found it on, online. So you just type in Ark of the Covenant, and they'll pop you a picture, and you can get lots of different pictures. But it's something interesting. Where that was, was where God rests the glory of God there for those people. So Israel could say, there's there's our God. There it is. What happened in Saul's reign? The Ark of the Covenant was taken. Listen, they took it. And Saul went and got it back. You know what's interesting? After Saul got back the Ark of the Covenant, he didn't go there and say, God, what do you want from me? God, I want to hear your voice. As you lead the nation of Israel, God, I want you to speak to me. There's no reference after Saul got the Ark of the Covenant back that he went back to that and said, You know, God, I want to worship you. God, I want to hear your voice. No reference. David, in chapter 6, and verse 3, he went to find the Ark of the Covenant. He went to bring it back to Jerusalem. And so they decided to transport the Ark of the Covenant. You find that in verse 3. They set the Ark of God on a new cart. What you also read, as you read on down through there, that's not the way you used to transport the Ark of the Covenant. And so one person is going to lose their life if you go over to um, verse 7, the, anger, the Lord's anger burned against Uzziah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died beside the Ark of God because he touched the Ark of God. He dies. And what you see is wherever the Ark of God is, there's blessing. And so David is going to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. Back to a place to say, God, I want to worship you. God, I want you to be in the center of our nation. God, we want to worship you. And we want to display that. We want, want that to be there. Huh? Interesting, and I'll try not to meddle too much here, but as I think about that, who's at the center of your life? Now, don't give me the church answer and don't answer out loud, okay? But all of us would sitting here would say, you know what, God, you're, you're a priority. You're, you're the center of our lives. Well, is he really? I was texting with our pastor friends this morning and just, we were texting back and forth just praying that Jesus would become more of a priority of our lives today than he was yesterday. And so even though you're sitting in the middle of 2 Samuel and you're, You're thinking, well, you know, it's just the Ark of the Covenant. There's a vivid symbol here, a vivid picture, a a vivid uh, illustration. It's right there in the middle, the Ark of God. Bring it home. David could have done a lot of different things. Hey, I'm the commander-in-chief. We're going to do it my way. No, no, let's get the Ark of God. I've seen God work. Let's bring that back to the center. Let's make that the center of who we are. Let's make Jerusalem say, here, here's the center, knowing That there's 65 churches or more in our county, but is Jesus the center of our county? Is Jesus the center of our lives? It's displayed everywhere. Drive up and down the road. Go to North Carolina. There's a church every corner. But just because there's a church there doesn't mean God. is being honored. Just because it's displayed still means that individuals sitting in individual seats, in a pew, in a building, have to make the choice. God, we want you to be proud. I don't care what everybody else does. Oh, yeah, it's nice. There's a cross here. But what does that cross mean to you this morning? I know what it means to me. I know what we can say it means to the church. That's great. We need to have those things. What does it mean to you this morning? And what's really neat is, as I think about the life of David, as I think about this next chapter, it's in chapter 7. Wait a second! David has a desire to build a place of worship. He didn't want God just to be represented in the Ark of Covenant. God, I've got a home, I've got cedar, I've got things around me. God, you're, just, you're, you're, te- you're dwelling in a temporary place. God, allow me to build something for you. And David had that desire, and so he shared it with Nathan. In chapter 7, you see that in verse 2, Nathan responds He said to the prophet, Here I am, living in a place of cedar. The ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever is in your mind, Go ahead and do it. The Lord is with you. That night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, Nathan describes this. God's not going to allow David to build that that tabernacle. God's going to allow Solomon, his son, but not David. Because David was a warrior. But God makes a a promise, a covenant to David. God makes a covenant to David that David, through your line, the Messiah will come. David, your throne will be established forever. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now I want you to just as Nathan would come to David and share these words, just go back with me. Go back to being in the field. Go back to being out saying, "You know, my dad told me I was supposed to take care of the sheep today, so I'm just going to go out and take care of the sheep." And the prophet of God arrives to my dad's house, and the dad didn't think about me, but God enlightened the prophet, say, "Hey, there's one more. There's a younger son. Where's he?" Oh, he's, he's, just how he's, he's just the shepherd. Yeah, that's the one I want. Just imagine that prophet walking to you and putting oil on your head and anointing you and you have no idea. They're just like, I'm just the shepherd. And then as you think through this day of anything that can be promised to David, God made a covenant with him. David, through you your home, your family, the Messiah. David, I make that come to you. Through the life of David, and, and you know what's interesting? We still haven't got chapter 11. See, most of us, we forgot about all this stuff. We forgot about in the middle of the Old Testament, when you got this young man that's this mighty warrior, and God's doing amazing things, and Jerusalem is being reestablished, and this young man has a desire. God, I want to build something for you, God. God, I want you to have a, a place to worship that's significant, God, just not in a tent. God says, hey, young man, I'll make a promise to you. I know your heart. I'll make a promise to you. I promise to you that the Savior of the world will come through your family, through your line, through the home of King David, a shepherd boy. And so this morning, as you look at the life of David, I, I just, I want you to, to be reminded, before we go a whole lot farther, that the Messiah comes through this home. And I want you to see as you see the life of David, and, and obviously I'm not going to be able to go through all this, and, I, and you and I, we think military, we think guns and camo, you know, and I was trying to go back and find an old sword. Because, you know, it wasn't like you could just... You know, I, I don't know anything about shooting and all that stuff. I don't, I'm, I'm just an amateur. But what I get to watch is, at times, I get to watch somebody put a rifle in my kid's hand. And then he can put a target out there about 300 yards away. And then he'll look down this scope. And somehow he knows how to breathe just right and pull the trigger just right. And then whenever he, wherever he's pointing he'll He'll pull that trigger, and that bullet will go exactly where he aims. It doesn't work for me. I can never hit that target way down there. I can't see it, but he can see it through this scope, and he knows exactly what to do Just pull that trigger just right when I shoot Give the rifle back to him it's the world and so we that's our concept of battle, but I want you to see David as this. This, this mighty warrior, if you look through, and I can't do it this morning, but just go through 8, 9, and 10, chapters 8, 9, and 10, and they put the whoop down on people. I mean, this army is just different, and they'll, they'll just wipe people out. And what's really interesting is I was reading through, uh, through this, the Moabites. If you read through and you'll see that David, um, in verse, chapter 8, verse 2, and David defeated the Moabites, he made them lie down on the ground And measured them off with link of a cord. Every two links of them were put to death, and the third was allowed to live. So just imagine. Forget being three hundred yards away. Forget being a half mile away. All right, we're going to line them all up, and they and what? Obviously, you know, I don't know this because I wasn't there. But what I'm understanding as I read and study, a lot of the ancient kings, what they would do is they would line them up in rows of three. And especially if you were somebody that they felt like was a military threat, they would line you up in rows of three, and they would kill the first two rows and let the next row go. And then they would do it again. Line them up, three deep, first two, gone. So just imagine you being lined up in three, three rows. So, you know, one, two, three of us. Which one of the three is going to live? Because two of us are going to die. So can you imagine being the person that was set free after, you know, it wasn't like they just, you know, had a bullet, just like a patoosh. You know, okay, that person falls over. After you, now you're going to be walking away, watching the blood pour out of your friends that were standing around you. You're going to be the one that's set free. And so this is what David has done. The Moabites, he goes in, hey, two are gone, three live. Or two are, are dead, one's going to live. And it goes on battle after battle, and you watch... David beat the Philistines. And you watch David become this mighty warrior. But see, we forget about those things. So what do we normally run to when we come to the book of 2 Samuel? We come to 2 Samuel chapter 11. One other chapter, chapter 8, verse 13, the Edomites, they killed 18,000. Just killed 18,000. At this point in history, the nation of Israel was at the greatest God had brought to the center of Israel and demonstrated His power. God had brought this group of people back together, these Jews back together, underneath the leadership of David that God had blessed and empowered. And now, for the first time in a long time, the city was fortified. They had military might and power. God had blessed them. But you know what's interesting? When God sends blessings, Sometimes comes distraction. Distraction. And so you see that in the life of David. You see the, the, what most of you have thought about or heard about most of your time as you think about Old Testament, you think about 2 Samuel, you think about David's transgression. You think about sin. So I'm not going to say a whole lot about that because if there's anything in the Old Testament you know about, you know about 2 Samuel chapter 11. You know about the choices that David made. You know about his laziness or his idleness. You know about the evening. What I find interesting is, just a little bit about this on the evening, from what I'm doing research-wise, at this point in David's life, he has concubines and what I think he has is at least six wives. So while he was out walking around at night... Just gaze around. You got six wives and concubines. I mean, I don't know what else you'd be doing, but he's out walking around. He's distracted. And so, as in his distractedness, he doesn't hold his heart protected and guarded. And so, he sees something. And he gets a little warning Uriah the Hittite. Hey, by the way, that's Uriah the Hittite's wife. And I want you to know something about Uriah the Hittite, because it was, sometimes we just read through it and say, oh, yeah, it's just Uriah the Hittite. But his name means. This is who Uriah was, or this is what his name means. My light is Yahweh. The Lord is my light. just want you to know that. But what I think is the most amazing part of all of this, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and as you get to 2 Samuel chapter 12, and this is what I love about David. Second Samuel chapter 12 and verse 13. And All of those who don't like the number 13, this should, that all your superstition, that you don't like the number 13, you need to like the number 13. Because in history, one man made a choice. and He sinned. But this man then said, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I was wrong. When Nathan came to him and said, Hey, David, what you've been involved in, is wrong David could have said a lot of different things and it's amazing if you watch Jewish history David should have been taken out in stone they should have killed him for adultery they should have killed him but when David was confronted with the truth here's the truth David and David could have said a lot of different things and this is what I love about David David didn't blame anybody David didn't say well you know I have my rights I'm the king David just said you know what I'm wrong. I have sinned. A little meddling. When was the last time you ever admitted you'd sinned? I know you know the verse, first John 1 9. If we confess our sins, we are faithful and just he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and us for all righteousness. But when was the last time you admitted that you sinned? That you stood before God when you read said something from the Word of God and you said, God I am wrong. David did. The mighty warrior was confronted with truth, and he didn't make any excuses. That's a man. I love to watch teenage boys talk. You know, 16, 17, they're, they're a man. They're a man. You know, they just like their muscles. I'm, I'm a man. You know, when you're a man, when you commit you're wrong. You know, when you're a man, when you're confronted with truth and you say, you know what, I've sinned, that's a man. And it's never demonstrated how big your muscles are. It's never demonstrated how much money you make. It's demonstrated right in this area of your life. When you stop and say, I am wrong, that's a man. And we have a warrior of all warriors that we get a chance, a glimpse, to look at. And I, you can do whatever you want to do, but I would challenge you not to judge the life of David. I would challenge you to stop and say, Wow, God, thank you for allowing me to look at this. And look at a man that was willing to say, You know what? I was wrong. And I know as you, as you think about David's sin, you've heard the stories, you know, you know the pain that's going to cost. And and we know, even in David's confession, we still know that that baby's going to die, right? We know that. You know what's fascinating to me? God held true to his promise to David, even though David sinned. Because you know what most of you would do? You'd take back your word. You wouldn't be gracious. You say, well, no, hold on a second. You broke the end of the. You're not the person that what I originally talked about, you know, way back in, in chapter 7 and chapter 8. And, and God is with you. Hold on, no, no. No, God said, David, I, I made a promise to you. My promise is to give you a son. Now think about this. This is where the Old Testament gets really exciting, and it'll probably keep you awake this afternoon in your nap time. But of all the people and all the wives that David already had, who did the line of the Messiah come through? David and who? Really? Have you thought about that? So all you people that love to keep God in a box, there goes your box. Because God ain't going to do it your way. And so, as I thought about this, and I, and I, just to be faithful, because I put three things on the screen, I want to finish my three things here. Part three of, of 2 Samuel is trouble. David's life is going to be filled with trouble after this. And what I think you need to do is you need to thank God that David went through the trouble because a lot of the Psalms that are written come from David's trouble. So there's 150 psalms. I was doing some research. There's some people say that reference of the 150 psalms, there's reference to David in 73 of those psalms. There's only 150, 73 reference David. And I don't, I'm not going to breeze through this real, real fast, but you all know the consequences of sin. I know the consequences of sin, so be careful with sin when you're confronted with it, and opportunities to make it right before God, just be a man, gentlemen. Agree with God. Say, God, I'm wrong. I'm agreeing with you. What I'm involved in is wrong. And what I think is, as I've been just thinking through this, and as you think through um, 2 Samuel, in the middle of 2 Samuel, You've got these three things, David triumphs, David's transgressions, David's trouble. And I realize this outline thing, so I'm going to leave this blank now, okay? Because I'm done with my outline part of what I want to do. So I ask myself this question, why am I studying 2 Samuel? What's really there for me? Why do I do it? You know why I do it? Because I see a picture of God's grace. That's why it's there. You notice I see that the gospel is confrontational. There's going to be controversy around it. Think about it. You're explaining to people about this Messiah that comes through the line of David that he went ahead and married after he killed her husband. Because God made a covenant with David. And God was faithful to his word. David, I'm faithful to you. You've messed it up. And here's the consequences, David. But I'm not changing, because David, I don't need you, but I want to use you. I want to demonstrate for years to come about my grace. And what a better picture in the middle of an Old Testament book in Second Samuel than the picture of God's grace in the life of David? And so, as I'm thinking about David, take your Bible, and I know you all—you probably can just whip it out in memory. But go to Psalm 23. I just want you to think about it. Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is you, you've got it memorized for a little, but I want, you to, I want you to think about it and I'll end this quick because I know we're getting close to time. Psalm 23. David. Psalm 23. David. Psalm 23. The shepherd boy. You know what the shepherd boy did. He made a choice. You know what he chose? My I'm savior, my I'm Messiah. God had promised him, but David's words: "This, the Lord is my shepherd." What's a shepherd? Somebody that cares for sheep, loves the sheep, protects the sheep, corrects the sheep. And I, I know nothing about shepherding, but as they move sheep around, you know what? How the sheep know where to go? By the shepherd's voice. What voice you listening to? Can you imagine David as he sat there and he wrote out these words? Can you imagine what he remembered about his son using his daughter? About his son going up in, in his castle and taking all of his concubines and doing things with them that shouldn't have been done. But David found comfort in these words. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. The Lord is His food and the Lord is His encouragement. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and I know a lot of us, when we think about that, we're thinking about when we're taking our last breath. But ladies and gentlemen, you're in a war. And you're living in America, and you've been comfortable for a long time. And God's going to rock your world. And you're going to walk through things because you call yourself a Christian that you never even thought you were going to ever have to face. And through those valleys, guess who's going to be there? The shepherd. His name's Jesus. He's the only one that's going to be around. The Messiah that came from the line of David. He'll be there. But you will have to make a choice to turn to look for that shepherd. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. Surely goodness and love follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So in the middle of a a book, in the middle of the Old Testament, in 2 Samuel, God makes a covenant with David. David, through your throne, through your family, through your line, through you and Bathsheba, will come the Messiah. And now in front of all of us is a choice to make. What do we do with that Messiah? What do we do with the cross? The provision has been made. And all of us know that we're sinners. I'm sure that when your mom said to you, when she placed cookies on the counter... Do not eat that cookie. I'm sure every single one of you went past there at least once and went ahead and ate the cookies. And you know what that classifies you as? A sinner. Because you disobeyed your mom. See, God loves sinners, and he made a provision for you. And God said, my provision will be on a cross, three nails, crown of thorns. Three days later, my son will rise again. You will be alive. It's your choice. God's not going to force this on you. He made the provision. God's going to give you an opportunity to respond. Man must personally believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to obtain the gift of salvation. You have to make a choice. Say, yes, Jesus, I believe. I receive. I trust. It's your choice. And what God will do if you make that choice, he'll guarantee eternal life. He will. So I want you to pray with me today. Father, thank you for allowing us to go through some Old Testament scriptures. And I realized, Father, it's very fast, very broad. But Father nestled in the middle of 2 Samuel, the covenant you made with David. Father, I want to say thank you for for fulfilling your covenant, even though David made some mistakes. Father, I want to say thank you for being gracious, a gracious Father, but that graciousness doesn't give me whatever allow me to do whatever I want to do. That graciousness allows me to say yes to you, Father. So if you're here this morning, and I realize it's Sunday morning, and I re- I know most of you, but I'm just wondering: Is he really your Messiah? Is he really your Savior? Is there really a hunger for you to say yes to His Word? Has there been a time where you stopped and said, you know what, I do need a Savior? See, this cross is all around America. As you ride through the country, if you take a country ride this afternoon, you watch a power pole. As you drive by the power pole, there's a cross there. It's Fascinating, God has them all over America. But what have you done with the cross? What have you done with Jesus? I know it's easy to say, well, yeah, I believe, or I... No, no, what if you personally do? I'm just asking if you've ever been a time you said, yeah, I believe. If you have it make today, that day. Say, yes, Jesus, I believe. I recognize, as you see through Second Samuel, that you love sinners. Recognize your faithfulness to your Word, Father. Recognize your gift of salvation through your one and only Son. So if you're here this morning, and you'd like to pray that, Talk with somebody. We have What's Next Ministry in the back. Thank you again for being with us this morning. Thank you for allowing me to open the Word of God. May God's Word be your manual, your instruction book, as you go about the rest of this afternoon, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, Saturday. And as you come back, we'll take the Word of God and open it again and share it with you. Father, thank you for this day. In your name I pray, amen.